0: Hey, I'm Dorothy from Redlands, California.
1: Hey, I'm Jared from Minneapolis. Hey, this is Robert from Washington, D.C.
0: The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me.
1: You should support the show like I did.
0: Visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Do it.
1: I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, at least in public radio circles, barely needs any introduction at all. It's Sarah Vowell. She's made a career for herself as a very particular kind of popular historian. She doesn't so much write as a historian, presenting what Werner Herzog recently called to me the accountant's truth. Rather, she writes from her own perspective, a perspective that is very contemporary and also very funny. This is a podcast-exclusive interview on The Sound of Young America. I spoke with Sarah at a book event here in Los Angeles. It was held in the meeting hall of a church, and we didn't really get a sound check. So if you happen to notice that my voice sounds a little bit weird, that's why. That's just what happens once in a while when uh, you're recording on the fly. Sarah's new book is called Unfamiliar Fishes. It's about the history of Hawaii, specifically that part of the history of Hawaii that runs from just before the arrival of Europeans to Hawaii's annexation to the United States at the beginning of the 20th century. Much of the book is about the relationship between the native people of Hawaii and the European missionaries and the European missionaries' children who settled there. Let's go to my conversation with Sarah Valley.
0: Thank you. Thank
1: you. So I guess um, the thing that I started thinking about as I was reading the book was the idea of who is interested in history and also who is a historian. And there's this really lovely person that you meet in the course of your research. You meet her in a library. This uh, Hawaiian woman who, has, who left Hawaii and came back and essentially became a family historian uh, uh, when she returned. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that, about that lady and you know the circumstances of uh, how you met her and, and her life.
0: Her name is Laurel Douglas, and she is a missionary descendant. She is the descendant of um, one of the New England missionaries who came to the Sandwich Islands in the 19th century. And her ancestor ended up running the school for the royal children. Is this who you're talking about? No. Okay. Um, And uh, her ancestor, both her great-something grandfather and her great-something grandmother, ran this school for the Hawaiian royals. um, And... um, I think five of those children in the school ended up being future monarchs of the islands. And my friend Laurel, she, she's a missionary descendant. She went to Punahou School, which is the school President Obama went to, and uh, you know was raised to be a proper 50s white girl in Hawaii. And then she left to become a blackjack dealer in Reno. <laughs> and... Um, she stayed uh, in the continent continental US for a, a couple of decades at least and then came back to Hawaii after her her son died and started she said when her son died he she just started reading and one of the books she read was about queen liliuokalani and the overthrow of the monarchy and she she went home and just uh started you know researching her family history and which is you know, there are a lot of people who research their family history, but she reaches and she's very passionate about it, but not because she's proud of her ancestors. She kinda hates her great something <laughs> grandfather and has this real loathing because um he 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 whip he whipped the royal children and she you know, he was abusive and disdainful of them and she sort of sees it as her mission to tell the truth about him and her family, and um, I thought that was a new twist, you know, on the uh, on the genealogical researcher, someone whose eyes light up when they see their ancestor's name, but only because she burns with a fury <laughs> for, for what a jerk he was, you know.
1: I remember when I was a kid, my father sitting down with my grandparents and recording all of the genealogical history that they knew, Mm -hmm. and it was, to me, the most boring thing that a human being could do on earth. Like, it was more boring than anything, alphabetizing the card catalog of the New York Public Library. And... And it's only now, as I'm coming quickly approaching thirty, that the idea of family history doesn't make me want to cry.
0: Mm-hmm. That's because you're closer to death.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, without putting too fine a point on it, it struck me that this woman was driven back into her roots and her ancestry by death further down the chain, mm-hmm. by the fact that her son died.
0: But then, when I met her, it was a kind of archival meeting, cute because I was introduced <laughs> to her by the by the director of the Hawaiian Historical Society in the Mission Houses archive, and um, she had just been to this other archive and she found one of the royal children's diaries, and um, I met her, and she immediately flipping through folders, and she found you know the this passage in her in the royal. Um, in the royal kids diary, that mentions that um, her own ancestor being born when the two the two teachers had a baby, and and then she's flipping through and finding the you know the part where um, uh, I think it was in her yeah she then she's flipping through to show me like one of the passages about the kids being beaten. And I thought, what an interesting lady, you know? And then the next day she took me on this hike to see the ruins of the summer palace of Kamehameha III, you know? I mean, remember when, when I met you, Jesse, at your radio show? That was also nice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the Sound of Young America is supported in part by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, publishers of John Waters' latest book, Role Models, now in paperback. Role Models is a self-portrait told through profiles of Waters' favorite personalities. Some famous, some unknown, some criminal, some surprisingly middle-of-the-road. Available now. In Sarah Vowell's last book, The Wordy Shipmates, she wrote with some fondness for the bookishness of 17th century New England Protestants. Her new book, Unfamiliar Fishes, traces missionaries in the 1800s who leave New England for Hawaii, and her feelings about them are much more mixed. In this next part of our conversation, she compares the two.
0: The Puritans, I find the original ones, are a little more, you know, lovable to me, just because some of them were <laughs> such great writers. You know, like one of my one of my favorite pieces of writing is John Winthrop's sermon, A Model of Christian Charity. Whereas the the later the New England missionaries that I write about, who go to um, Hawaii, they leave Boston Harbor in 1819. They they do. Once they arrive, they invent a written Hawaiian language. They teach you know most of the Hawaiian people to read within a generation. They bring printing presses with them. they translate the Bible into Hawaiian. They publish millions of pages um, of, you know, besides the Bible, textbooks, newspapers, other books, almost all of it in Hawaiian. And so that part of it I mean, in the middle of the 19th century, the Hawaiian islands might have had the highest literacy rate. In the world, you know they were so successful. On the other hand, um, their program, which was to you know travel for six months to this other country who had not invited them, show up there and tell the locals how very wrong they are about everything, is a little condescending, and, <laughs> and part of the book chronicles some of the you know difficulties with 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 that. And then, of course, their children grow up to um, overthrow the Hawaiian monarch and hand the islands over to the United States. So, um,
1: It's a balancing act, is what you're saying. Yeah. I, I imagine,
0: though, that... I mean, I think what they went there to do, you know, because I'm not religious, I find that part of it ridiculous, but... I mean I do still admire them as people in their fortitude and their courage. I mean they, they had very hard lives and they gave up, you know, lives of relative comfort in their hometowns with, you know, families and friends and, and just, you know, went off to this faraway land because, you know, they wanted to save these people from the eternal flames of hell. And when you look at it that way, it was darn nice of them. <laughs>
1: Let's talk a little bit about the, the the native Hawaiian side of this interaction. What what was going on uh, in Hawaii before uh, before missionaries started showing up, in, the, in that time between uh, just before Captain Cook uh, stumbled upon the Hawaiian Islands and when missionaries s- started coming in to convert everyone to Christianity?
0: Well, the year, well, Captain Cook uh, first landed on Kauai in 1778, which, uh, in January, which was right when George Washington and Lafayette and those guys are, you know, shivering at Valley Forge, to give you some context of what's going on over here. Um, And, you know, before that, the several hundred years, at least maybe a thousand years before that, um, voyagers, settlers from the Marquesas and Tahiti settled Hawaii, and all of the islands were sort of interrelated, kind of feudal chiefdoms. And then after... um, after Cook arrived and these Western ships started showing up, one of the one of the um, chiefs from the big island Kamehameha uh, he He started acquiring cannons and took on some of the uh, a couple of advisors, you know um, europeans from from the um, ships that were passing through and He started conquering all the islands using this new technology and um, and uh, you know, guns and other uh, Western weapons. And the Hawaiians, when they the verb they use to describe that process is he united the islands, <laughs> but he he um, conquered one island after the other, except for Kauai, which eventually submitted to his will. And by 1810, he had established um, the United, you know, the Kingdom of Hawaii, in which all the islands were under
1: his rule. And tell me a little bit about how the relationship between these. Missionaries who arrived in the early beginning of the 19th century, and these kings and queens of Hawaii developed over the the sort of the first part of uh, their history. You know, the first 20, 30, 40 years.
0: Well, when when the the missionaries of Pioneer Company was sailing from Boston in 1819, while they were en route, Kamehameha the Great died, and his his son took over, and. Uh, he he was he he was in power, and when the missionaries arrived, they were under his thumb, and they had to get his permission to settle and he finally sort of gave that to them uh for a year at a time they had to um i mean they quite um it was smart of them to sort of suck up to the royal class because the there it wasn't. There was a king, and then there were a couple of um, his father's queens who were very powerful. The queen mother and a, a, and another woman who was um, the most powerful of the queens, uh, Kamehameha's favorite queen. And the the missionaries' big coup early on was con, con, was um, converting those two very powerful women to Christianity. So that, that opened a lot of doors for them in terms of you know, convincing the government to do things like regulate liquor, outlaw fornication, and adultery. Meanwhile, um, also at the same time, the, the whalers start coming from New England too. They're all from, you know just like the missionaries, all these people are, were born within about 150 miles of Boston Harbor, but the missionaries you know while they're get help you know where they're convincing the ruling class to outlaw fornication and adultery and regulate liquor the whalers when they start showing up in Hawaii in droves as sailors on leave have a lot of you know interest in fornication liquor and <laughs> adultery and so the the New Englanders sort of clash and uh, you know event like one one um, whaling ship On Maui, um, when they find out there will be denied prostitutes, they fire a cannon at the at the mission house (laughs) in Maui. So
1: there's like a secret shipment of prostitutes that's sent there. Hawaiians
0: get you know they sort of get the worst possible extremes of Americans at this time. You know they they get the like buttoned up Puritan killjoys and um, spring break basically. It's not like the regular, normal Joes were, you know, taking six-month voyages to Polynesia
1: <laughs> at the time. These these uh, Puritan killjoys are kind of insinuating themselves into a religious power vacuum. Um, er, early on in this time, because one of the kings, in a sort of power consolidation move, gets rid of all the priests.
0: Yeah, when Kamehameha the Great died, as these first missionaries are on the sea, on their way there, his son takes over, and um, in consultation with those two queens I mentioned, um, he it's called he breaks the kapu means basically he, he destroys the old religion. He fires all the priests. He has the temples abandoned and all the old idols burned and doesn't replace this, you know, and, and the old religion is kind of kaput. And meanwhile, when the missionaries arrive and, and, and find out, you know, the old religion has, has been squashed by the king, it's their lucky day, you know. I mean, <laughs> gift from God, and so they 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 were able, I think, to make a lot more progress quickly because of that.
1: The kings and queens. And it's
0: also one of those things that makes me love nonfiction, because if you were writing that, if you were making up a story about this, say, oh, and as the missionaries are on the old, on their way there, the old religion is abolished by the king. Like, that seems a little implausible.
1: Well, <laughs> convenient.
0: Yeah, but it's nevertheless true.
1: <laughs> Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Sarah went on to describe big shifts in Hawaii over the course of the 1800s. The native population plummeted due to outbreaks of various diseases brought in by the American whalers, plus an influx of plantation workers from Asia arrived to harvest Hawaii's big new crop, sugar. As a result, the ethnic makeup of Hawaii shifted dramatically, and the existing dynasties lost some of their relevance. Here, Sarah talks about the weird hybrid government that emerged out of Hawaii's monarchy in the late 19th century before the islands were annexed by the United States.
0: After the, the last of the Kamehameha dynasty, after the last of those kings died and there wasn't a and without name, he died without naming a successor. And so to get a new monarch, they they had an election and, you know. Um, but the candidates was, were from a very small pool of the you know highest of the high chiefs, and one of them was a guy named David Kalakaua, and another one was uh, Queen Emma, who was the widow of one of the former uh, kings. And the the legislature uh, they had to uh, vote on one of those. So there, so for a while, Kalakaua is the king elect. Which, I mean, that system. Kind of combines all of the worst things about democracy and monarchy. (laughs) You know, it's sort of unfair that only people with really fancy blood are eligible. And then when one of them loses, then there's all all the like sore feelings and uh, uh, that comes. You know, after an election when when one's candidate doesn't win. Not that I know anything about that.
1: Um. (laughs) (laughs) I get the impression that Kawakawa was not the most like a uh, high-efficiency, high-competency king either.
0: He, I mean, it's the Gilded Age, and so most of your world leaders are going to be kind of um, iffy on some of the moral issues. <laughs> uh, you know, his, his counterpart, President Grant, in, in fact, when Kalakaua came to the U.S. Uh, to lobby for um, a, an economic treaty of reciprocity between Hawaii and the United States, he was President Grant threw him a state dinner. He was the first uh, first foreign uh, leader to get a state dinner. And President Grant was also, you know, overseeing one of the most corrupt administrations uh, in our history. So it wasn't a good time for, like, good government in general <laughs> in the world. I will say, yeah, Kalakaui, he, he was a... And they called him the Merry Monarch. So he was... Um, he liked to have a good time. He could... Um, he was a bit of a drinker, also like President Grant, uh, kind of a gambler. Kind of, um, you know, he was, which led to some of his corruption, just because he had to, um, you know, get some extra scratch to pay off his gambling debts. But I have to say, so politically, he he could have been a little more conscientious about his role as king. Culturally, he's still wildly beloved in Hawaii, just because. I mean, part of his merry monarch, bon vivant, um, Johnny Goodtime side, uh, it manifested itself in a in a in a love and a support of all the old Hawaiian traditions that you know missionaries had um, disdained, like hula. Uh, there, the Mary Monarch Festival of Hula in Hawaii is named in his honor because he, he helped revive that art form. He put it at the center of his coronation. He had a lot of hula chants collected and transcribed. Um, he had the, the kumulipo, which is the, the genealogy, the history of Hawaii from the beginning of time up through his own ancestors' Um, he had that uh, transcribed and published, and so culturally, he's he's still quite beloved there for his um, his patronage of um, all of these native art forms that were kind of um, on the decline because of so much missionary influence.
1: As the land starts to concentrate in the hands of the howlies, the, uh, the white folks, mm-hmm. um, and the power starts to concentrate in the hands of those people, and, and as sugar becomes an increasingly important part of how those people are making their money... Mm-hmm. Um, the system of government starts to get real shaky as those people start to wonder whether it's in their best interests to have this king in power.
0: Yeah, well, they're eventually, after he dies and his sister, Queen Lilia comes to power, they do overthrow her, literally. But really, they, as she put it, um, you know, they. they they overthrow the the Hawaiian monarchy when they force um, King Kalakaua to sign this new constitution that you know severely limits uh, the voting rights of for for certain political offices for people who don't uh, own enough property or or have a high enough income, which you know keeps a lot of um, the native Hawaiians from, from voting and gives uh, you know this this little circle. Of uh, missionary descendants, a lot, a lot more power over the king. Um, they kind of force themselves into his cabinet, and he kind of becomes a figurehead. and And one, and one of the, and the main reason that they go on to overthrow his sister when, when she becomes queen after his death is that she is writing a new constitution to restore. You know, voting rights to um, to the natives, and to get rid of some of the more nefarious parts of that old constitution. And they accuse her of treason. You know, for for writing this revolutionary document. And that's when they um, stage their coup d'état against her.
1: I'm sure that you had spent probably more time thinking about Hawaii as a. Um, You know, as a vacation destination, as the Aloha State, as the birthplace of Barack Obama, and those kinds of things. Then you had uh, thinking about 19th century Hawaii before you started this.
0: Well, um, no, no. I mean, I started. I for one thing, I started it before he was elected. Though, don't get me wrong. I thought. I mean, the first thing I thought when I was he was elected was, you know, yay! I voted for him. He won. And the second thing I thought was that could be good for the book <laughs> but uh, so I was I was already in this before he um, came to power
1: but I, I, what I what I'm saying I guess is that I imagine there was a point in your life where the you know visit to Hawaii episode of the Brady Bunch loomed at least right up there with Kamehameha the third
0: well I mean that presupposes that um, <laughs> uh, okay fine Uh, I'm just not a beachy person you know and uh, (laughs) so that part of Hawaii never really appealed to me the first time I went there was just to go see the Arizona memorial at Pearl Harbor and that's how I kind of got sucked into this story because I also went to the palace um, on that trip and took a tour and kind of got interested in that and then you know uh, years later came back to Honolulu and with some Californians for a concert, and i was I remember trying to talk them all into going to in the palace and taking the tour because you know it's such a fascinating story and and we really don't think about this and I mean it's so tied into Pearl Harbor because you know the japanese they couldn't have they wouldn't have bombed uh Hawaii for being American if you know Americans hadn't overthrown the queen and handed over the islands to the united states and, uh, and I mean I was unsuccessful they they like just wanted to sit on the beach or something. But uh, (laughs) that was the moment, though, when I realized, like, oh, I think I'm pretty interested in this stuff, considering how worked up I'm getting about it, you know?
1: What what was it about these...
0: No, in fact, the origin of this book is like, don't sit on the beach. Go take a tour of a Victorian mansion where the only monarchs who ever lived in the United States used to live.
1: What... (laughs) What was it that... Ignited you to the point that you wanted to fly to Hawaii, many thousands of miles from where you live, and stay in a hotel. It was
0: a real albeit, bear of a commute, I have to say.
1: A, a hotel, albeit a hotel from Hawaii Five O, from the opening credits of Hawaii Five O.
0: I did stay in that building, yes.
1: <laughs> um, and then spend your Hawaiian days in an archive reading, you know, the diaries of. Uh, missionary women and the memoirs of Hawaiian kings and queens mm-hmm.
0: don 't forget the whaling newspapers
1: <laughs> <laughs> what was it What was it about the story that that motivated you to the extent that you were that you were willing to dedicate years of your life to it
0: well, you know that moment when uh, i 'm realizing how how interested I was in that subject, trying to convince people to to go learn more about it. I should also say that you know I had um I had written this book that's partly about President McKinley or it's mostly about him getting shot but um <laughs> while I was researching that I got kind of just you know fascinated with the Spanish-American War era and so like um you know 1898 became this sort of obsession of mine because it's kind of the year we became who we are now. And Hawaii is part of that just because in that summer when we're invading Cuba, invading the Philippines, taking over Guam and Puerto Rico, that's when we annexed Hawaii. And so, you know, the moment I realized how interested I was in the story of what was going on in Hawaii in the decades leading up to that, I was already there with my, you know profound obsession with 1898 and the Spanish-American War era. So those two things just kind of came together in my mind as one little eureka of book idea.
1: (laughs) It's really this this moment where Manifest Destiny goes from being about coast to coast and maybe Canada or something Mm -hmm. to extending across the world which is something that we're, you know, we're still struggling with now. I mean, right now... I don't
0: know what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> no, after 1898, we stopped. We're like, no, we don't want to meddle in the world's affairs. <laughs> That's not who we are.
1: Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking this time to talk with me.
0: Thank you, Jesse, for getting all dressed up and <laughs> taking the time to
1: query me. How about a big round of applause? (laughs) That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our music is provided to us by Dan Wally, our producer, Julia Smith, our editor, Nick White. Our intern on the show is Lindsay Palmer. If you have thoughts about the show, you can share them on our forum at forum.maximumfund.org or you can just email them to me. This is my actual email address, jesse at maximumfund.org. You can get all of our shows absolutely 100% for free in iTunes or on our website, MaximumFun.org. And when I say all of our shows, I mean not just every Sound of Young America, but also our comedy shows like Jordan, Jesse, Go, My Brother, My Brother, and Me, Stop Podcasting Yourself, and even Judge John Hodgman. It's all online at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter, Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.